Okay, so we are back in. Um, let's talk about your first kinky sexual experience with a woman. So my first kinky sexual experience was with an awesome woman named April. She specialized in bringing women out. Hmm. She wasn't so great at sustaining long-term relationships back then. She's, she's since grown into that um, and is now happily partnered for quite some time. But she was my first female lover. And the first time we had sex, it involved bondage, blindfolds, and fisting. Fuck. And, you know, it was really good sex. <laughs> um, and she was Polly. And I was, I don't know, a few months in our relationship. I had a date with somebody else. And, you know, as far as I was concerned, you know, sex with a woman involved bondage, blindfolds, and fisting. <laughs> as so far as you knew. <laughs> I was so disappointed. <laughs> um on this date with this other woman i was like but i thought what what do you mean you don't want to oh i just thought that's how dykes did it that's how dykes did it i just thought that's how dykes did it and i was really happy about that um so that was my first sort of kinky leathery um sex with with women from Again, from jump, I I, I I tend to jump in the deep end. Now, was that your first time trying fisting? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I had, you know, the 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 male lovers that I had had um, previous to that, you know, were all about their dicks and using their mouths and not so much about their hands. Wow, that's hot. <laughs> April was hot. She was a third generation Mexican-American from Salinas, California. That woman could cook. She was funny. She was great in bed. She knew everybody. Mm. Um, she had ended up in Baltimore on a, a full scholarship to Johns Hopkins and didn't finish in time on the scholarship because um, she was too busy um, doing queer organizing in you know in the gay and lesbian community in Baltimore and DC and whatnot, protests, this, that, the other thing. So she knew everybody. Hmm. And I, she was my first partner, and she introduced me to everybody. So when I went from coming out in January of 1988 to being on the board of directors in the Gay and Lesbian Community Center by October, a large portion of that was timing, and April knew everybody and introduced me to everybody. Uh, but it was also, you know, Baltimore was it had a little bit of a queer renaissance right then. We had... You know, we got the, the the AIDS quilt. We had squares for Pride that year. We passed the Gay and Lesbian Civil Rights Bill in Baltimore City that year. On the, it was the third try, but that was the year it passed. So I, you know, I came out. I got involved in the Baltimore Justice Campaign. We're going to change the law, and we did. So from the beginning, I believed that all of it was possible. Because um, when I first came out, I came out into a grand success. And then I realized that everybody around me was dying. Hmm. Um, I missed the the horrible first wave, um, where people that that I that I met and I knew lost you know entire pages of their address books, which were you know on paper at that point. Yeah. Um, and they lost entire pages and pages and pages of friends. Um, hmm. I didn't come out till '88. We had you know they were poisoning the guys with AZT at that point. And I remember when the protease cocktail was, was invented, you know, being on the board of directors of the Chase Brexton Health Clinic, you know, it, it separated from the Gay and Lesbian Community Center of Baltimore. It started as the Gay Men's VD Clinic 
a project of the Gay and Lesbian Community Center of Baltimore. At the time, the Gay Community Center of Baltimore when it first started. Mm-hmm. And then when AIDS, uh, HIV hit, it became the tail that wagged the dog. Um, the community needed the health clinic to get big real fast, and there was a lot of money and the oversight and all of that, and it became very obvious that the health clinic needed to be its own thing. Now, did did HIV and AIDS affect the women's community similarly, or what was the women's community's experience through all of that? Um, there were certainly women that got sick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people didn't talk about it, but there was certainly a lot of, you know, some sex happening and some, uh, you know, people, uh, women that, that got HIV through, um, through dirty needles, hmm. especially women who were also in the sex trade. You know, there were a lot of women who got sick and there were a lot of women that took care of their friends that were sick. You know, I wasn't there at the very beginning of the AIDS epidemic. But I have been friends and lovers with people that were. And, you, you know, and there were times and places where the only people that would care for our dying siblings were the lesbians and the dykes hmm. because the straight people wouldn't touch them, yeah. you know, before they knew new things. And the dykes were like, these are our brothers. We're going to we're going to help out here. So based off of from your experience, would you say that the epidemic of AIDS and HIV maybe brought both of your communities closer together? I think it did. Hmm. I really think it did, especially in a smaller community like Baltimore. Mm -hmm. You know, Baltimore is a smaller place where there aren't that many leather people, you know, and after the, you know, for a while there, there weren't that many gay people because, you know, a lot of people had died. So we had to, you know, we didn't have the privilege of being insular the way you say you know you could be in san francisco or new york or chicago do you do you think that that unity of like let's help out our brothers and sisters that vibe did that stick like do we still have that mentality today or have you seen that change in the you know i don't spend very much time in larger queer communities so i can't speak to that but in leather community, especially queer leather, mm-hmm. I think so. I, yeah. I think that we that we look out for each other, and that it is you know one big, huge, dysfunctional leather family. Um, and I've asked this question before to other guests, and I mean, I'm I'm thinking maybe I guess in hindsight because I'm a, a product of you know I'm a baby of the '90s, but um, I would imagine <laughs> that after finding out how HIV was transmitted between people that this would be like a golden age of BDSM because a lot of BDSM doesn't have to do with fluid exchange or penetration necessarily. Did you experience that or was it everyone was just kind of shocked at what was happening? So that wasn't even a thought kind of thing. Um, Yes and no. Uh, By the time I came along, I'm going to say yes. But early on in the HIV AIDS epidemic, the leather community got hit hard because we were having more sex. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but by the time I got involved in the early 90s, yeah, definitely. You know, leather was very popular. Mm-hmm. And I can only, you know, know, I know what I'm told about the men's parties mm-hmm. um, because there has not, 
in the last 30 years that I've been involved in the leather community, there haven't been a lot of co-gender play parties. Pansexual play parties tend to mean that the heterosexuals are there, but there have not been that many queer, co-gender, all-gender play events that has been you know, that has been one place where the leather community is often segregated. Yeah. And not always. I don't want to, by any context, mean to imply always, because I have certainly been to some fantastic off-the-hook um, queer play parties where everyone was invited, as long, you know, as long as you were queer or knew how to behave in queer space. But it's certainly the women's community, the women's leather community has been a big proponent of wearing gloves you know, and having a lot of negotiation before becoming fluid bonded. Yeah, and it sucks too because it's like, I feel like the diseases, the disease and everything, it always hits our community first, right? <laughs> because we're, we have the most contact with like now with the monkeypox thing. I'm like, seriously, right when we were just starting to get a, around COVID and figure that out, now there's something else. Like, I just want to be a slut. Is that so much to ask for, Glenda? No. <laughs> I think it's a fabulous plan, but it's getting harder and harder to be a responsible slut. Yes, it sure is. I'm telling you. <laughs> you got to pay more attention to the science well, every day. I, I do. I, I do want to kind of ask you a little bit more about your bio here. Say for 30 plus years, a priority of yours has been making play happen. And I kind of want to go back to your playhouse say, with your basement. And, and... The basement was just storage. Oh, um, the the play space was a... the second. The play spaces were the second and third floor. <gasps> First floor of playhouse um, studios and gallery was art gallery and social space and a little bit of retail every now and then. And our offices were down there. That sounds amazing. Um, so did, was it zoned for as a sex club or? No, we were an art gallery and photography studio. Got it. Okay. Um, yeah, the, there was no, um, there is no zoning code for sex club. Okay. Many, many years later in 2014, um, when I helped uh, after the big fire and Playhouse Studios was no more, literally, some friends of mine came to me and said, hey, we want to, you know, reopen Playhouse. I'm like, well, you can't reopen Playhouse, but I'll help you open something else. Hmm. Like, well, we kind of want to be of the lineage. I'm like, oh, well, well, let's talk. If I, you know, if, if we do it the right way, we could say that. So there's now Baltimore Playhouse. Okay, wait uh, a second, though, because you kind of brush over the fact that this whole place went up in flames. Like, what's the story there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So the, the end of Playhouse Studios and Gallery was a five-alarm fire on the coldest day of the year, January 2013. Damn. But there's a whole lot of more fun stories to tell first. But there's even a fun story about that. So, you know, my universe, Brandon, has always had a sense of humor. Okay. A really twisted, hilarious sense of humor. So there had been this amazing... The Leatherman's Discussion Group in San Francisco had done one of their most amazing presentations ever, and they had to have it at the um, at the Gay Community Center there on Market Street because it was too big for the upstairs space at Mr. S. So it was this huge community meeting, the topic being, is leather dead? Huh. Or maybe it was our leather contest dead? Wait, one is or it, the other. this was what, your 2013, you're saying? This was 2013. It was okay. Race Banning, Gail Rubin, and the really hot guy that was um, was um, publishing Instigator Magazine. Okay. Um, and I think Graylin. 
Thornton. I think there were four people up on the dais, and I think it was must have been about leather contest, but might have been is leather debt anyway. It was this huge thing, and we a bunch of us went across the street um, afterwards for drinks, um, and we were still talking about it. And I happened to look down at my phone, and I got this text, um, and I, I it was a text telling me a, that the building was on fire. Um, so uh, I must have gone pale because my friends at that point all turned and looked at me with great concern. And you know that moment in a bar between songs where, you know, if everything is right, like there's this split second of dead silence. Yeah. Like the bartender's yeah. not moving. It's just absolute. There's no music. There's nothing. It's just dead silent for a second. And in that moment, one of my friends like, Glendo, what's wrong? And then the next thing before I could utter another word, this, the next song on the on the playlist comes up and to the opening strains of the roof is on fire. Shut up. You can't make this no shit up. <laughs> and I just start laughing maniacally and my friends are like, what's wrong? <laughs> I handed my phone to one of my friends, my, my kind of my foster boy, Ray. And uh, Ray looked at it and looked at me. And I said, yeah, Playhouse oh is on God. fire. And everybody, we just all lost our shit at that point. We we're laughing so hard. I mean, because at that point, what can you do, right? Right. Like it's what on can fire. you do? And like... then it got even, even you know, more paranormal. Um, <laughs> a couple of months before this, you remember that show, Lucy Lou's America, where she went around interviewing people? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, she did an episode, recorded an episode at Playhouse. No way. Um, for that. Uh, we weren't, I wasn't in it, but some friends of mine were in this episode and she recorded it at Playhouse. Um, and I get home to Oakland where, you know, I'm living at the time and my housemates are watching that on the TV as I walk <laughs> through the door. And they're like, Oh my God, you look terrible. What's wrong? Oh. And I started laughing again. I mean, I, I just, you know, just drew over the TV. I'm like, um, well, well, place. place just burned down. Yeah. Did you figure out, did you ever find out what happened? Like how? Um, I do know what happened. Um, and that would have to be an off the record conversation. Oh, got it. Okay. We're going to keep that off the record. Um, wow. So where did you go from there? Where did I go from there? Uh, that was, I still had, you know, I had International Ms. Leather, International Ms. Bootblack 2013 to produce um, mm -hmm. that spring. And you, you, um, uh, you owned? I was the owner of the contest, both contests and the weekend. Uh -huh. And there were a series of co-producers through the seven years that made up Generation 3. Got it. And you would identify as Generation 3? Three? Yeah, uh, the, the international Ms. Leather, international Ms. Boot Black has had, um, we're now on generation five. Got it. Okay. Um, the first generation originated the contest in 1987, mm -hmm. and there were a couple of different formats of how that was organized and structured. It almost came to an end in 1994. Mm -hmm. But one of the one of their title holders, International Ms. Leather, 1993, Amy Marie Meek, stepped up and said, well, if you guys don't want to do this anymore, I'll do it. Hmm. Uh, Generation two under her guidance and ownership lasted 12 years. 
up and through 2006. And then I took over in 2007 with co-producers Levi Halberstadt and Daryl Flick. And then Celeste Devineau and Levi and I were producers the second year. Then we brought Tomo in as a producer and Ms. Rhonda, who had been working since the beginning on, on the staff, became a producer later on. And then Sharon Spector, who had been had been part of her leather family. She was the matriarch of a leather family and had been sort of the shadow producer for the entire time I had owned the contest, was finally agreed to be named producer for 2013. So there's been a number of producers through the years, some incredibly talented and dedicated people on the staff. We really made some magical things happen, made play happen for over 700 people in San Francisco from around the world. Um, It was a conference, as we put it, for leather dykes and everyone who loves them. (laughs) There were a whole bunch of men that came every year. They're like, you know, we come to IMSL, and the other guys that come at IMSL, um, they come to play. (laughs) And, you know, one of the things that was important to me was our play spaces. We had a men's space, a women's space, and uh, everybody's space. Hmm. And they were open around the clock. From Friday morning until 1 a.m. Monday morning, except for the 30 minutes each day that they vacuumed. Wow. And it was important to me. And people were like, you know, always tried to hide it from me that they didn't go to the contest because, you know, there was nobody playing then. I could, you know, get first crack at the equipment. I'm like, I'm not butthurt if you didn't come to the contest. If you had a yeah. good time playing, that's great. I mean, you 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 pr- you produced that and you made it present there for an experience. And if people can leave with a positive experience, I mean, one of my favorite parts would be every year. You know, afterwards, I get you know a thank you note or an email. Um, one time, this couple sent me flowers. Like I met the love of my life at your event. Oh, that was so sweet. That's so awesome. And then the boot blacks were were fantastic. One of the things that I was really proud about was when when me and my team took over International Ms. Leather, International Ms. Boot Black, we really put some more meat on the bones of, uh, oh, I probably shouldn't say it that way because the vegetarians and vegans probably would like that. (laughs) Um, We tried, we basically turned it from, a popularity contest based on everybody that bought a package would get a ballot for the boot black contest. That's a gen, you know, generation one didn't have a boot black contest. Generation two, Amy Marie Meeks started the international news boot black contest in 1999. Hmm. Um, that was the first year that there was an international Ms. Boot Black contest. And a lot of the boot black contests around the country at that time were ballot only. You know, you got your boots done or you got your dick sucked or, you know, they were your ex's best friend and they got your ballot or Mm -hmm. you liked that jock they were wearing or, you know, you like blondes, whatever. You know, some people would sit there and watch and try to figure out who was the best boot black and that's who got their ballot. But, you know, it, it was a little bit too too much popularity contest for my taste i see so it was american Uh, idol style like whatever the audience votes in mm -hmm. but but like you're saying like the judging necessarily isn't necessarily considering all of the factors that go right so we added like technical boot you know they're basically we'd we'd get a bunch of pairs of boots and you know you'd you'd mess up one of them and then the boot black have to fix what you messed up and then we always had a couple of boot blacks um, as judges and then one person who wasn't a boot black but was a boot black aficionado. 
And then we had a mystery judge we added at one point, and we added interview. We believed at the time that the bootblacks weren't interested in having to give a speech on stage or do a fantasy. That has, I think, that, I think that general feeling changed through the years, and now I think the new generation of international Ms. Bootblack contests, I do think they do a speech and fantasy, something like that. Okay. Um, but we did have Imsel. One of the things our weekend had was an opening number that the contestants were a part of, and the Bootblacks um, and the Imsel contestants, both of them were part of that whole opening number thing. We really tried to elevate the position of the Bootblacks and make it more skill-based than popularity-based. And I was really lucky because my boy, Levi Havlstadt, was my primary partner and my co-producer. And his daddy and other partner, uh, Jim Duder, who was a very well-known East Coast bootblack from New Jersey, and I, I think he had a title at one point. He was international Mr. Bootblack, I want to say, at one point. I uh, can't remember the year. I'd have to look it up. But, you know, he and I were metamorphs. He was part of my, you know, he was my boy's other partner. So, and I was like, Jim, you know all about this boot black and boot black contest and this and that. Will you redesign this for me? And he and Levi proceeded to redesign the International Miss Boot Black Contest to add all of the skill elements in 2007. And I'm incredibly proud of that. Wow. I love boot blacks and the skill and the pizzazz and boot blacks first I, I really the boot blacks are awesome and i was really glad to be able to to make that a richer experience for them so that was generation three you're saying and yes. I, and so you handed that off to to whom i handed that off to sharon specter got it okay in, for 2014 and she created a new team i was really good at throwing the party I was not so good at keeping the business end of the LLC in order. And we went in undercapitalized, and I went in without a good bookkeeper. And I made a number of financial mistakes and had to rob Peter to pay pay Paul a few times, and some of the charities didn't get their funds that we raised for him in a timely fashion. Hmm. And after seven years of trying to get it all to work out, it became obvious that the event itself, as we had it constructed, was never going to be able to dig itself out of the financial hole that I put it in. So I passed it off, um, sold it to Sharon for a dollar, explained to the community what the situation was, that I had you know, really screwed this part of it up, and went and got a day job and went and consulted with the next group that wanted to open a playhouse and, you know, basically worked my butt off and lived on my mom's couch until I paid back every penny that the charities were due. Wow. Didn't travel that year unless somebody threw me in the back of their van. Um, I mean, that's really big of you to take ownership of that because a lot of any other person could have just said, well, forget it and thrown their hands in the air and, and not paid back what they felt they owed. You know, you know what I said at the time, what am I going to do? Change my name and move to Dubuque? Oh, God, not that not there's Dubuque. anything wrong with Dubuque. You know, if somebody's here listening from Dubuque, <laughs> I'm sure you have a fabulous sex positive scene there. Mm. But, you know, what was I going to do? Leave town? Yeah. yeah. This is my family. It had been my family since, you know, 1991. This was 2013. Yeah. You know, it had been my community for 20 years. You know, what was I going to do? It said, you know, be transparent. Say, you know, guys, I screwed this up. Um, 
I'm really sorry. This is how it happened. Um, that's no excuse. But for those of you that asked, this is how it got here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm going to go away for a while and fix it. And then I did. For those who may be thinking about producing or creating their own in the future, like what would be your advice to those people now having the, had this experience? Um, make sure that you have your paperwork in order. Have a good bookkeeper, good accountant. Make sure your paperwork is in order. But at the same time, make your event fun. Yeah. Um, one of the, you know, I'm like, I've been to events where like, you know, I I travel, you know, Sharon Spector and I were really close for a very long time. And we traveled a lot together. And she lived in San Francisco. And she did a lot of teaching on the East Coast because she was from New York City. She grew up in New York City. So she came back to the East Coast visit family a lot. You know, it's it's pay attention to the details. Don't ask your West Coast presenter to teach a blood sports class at 9 a.m. on the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Okay, you're asking her to, to, to teach blood sports at 6 a.m. Have you lost your mind? <laughs> you know, it's pay attention to the details. Yeah. Um, you know, have the wallflower committee. Have it be somebody's job. This is something I told uh, every last one of the title holders whenever I've been producer of any kind of event that in, involved a, a title holder or an ambassador of any sort is your job is not only to talk to the cool kids, but your job is to talk to everybody in the bar. Okay. Your job is to a invite every person that is at the event you've been asked to go to invite them to the next event that you're representing. Hmm. And your second job is to replace yourself. It's to populate you. Your job is to inspire people to want to run for your title. I love that. So if you're producing a contest, you know, those are, I think, are things that are are really important. If you're producing a play party, if you're producing a fundraiser, whatever, if you're producing a fundraiser, one of the things they taught me very early on in my um, my time with the human rights campaign was be wary of your cost of fundraising and be honest about your cost of fundraising. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's something that that's important, but always balance out that with fun. The, the, I think the reason that people found it in my, in their hearts to forgive me for the most part, and some people never will. And, you know, that's, I, I screwed up and I screwed up in a big way. Um, you know, the, the risk of being, you know, getting the accolades and the awards and you know all of the cool things that i've gotten through the years is that you know when you do screw up it's like you know falling off the pedestal your community has put you on and breaking the fall with your face wow yeah um but i think that the reason that a lot of people found it in their hearts to forgive me once i had paid the money back was that i always threw a fun party you know, that fun was a core value and making play happen was always a core value. And, you know, we get away from that. Like, you know, people, if you're running a conference, you know, don't give people 10 minutes to change classes. Yeah. Give them 20 minutes or half an hour because the most important conversations happen in the hallway between classes. You know, it's it's balance. But as you're finding trying to find the balance, you, you got to make it fun. People learn a lot more if they're having a good time. Mm-hmm. 
and they'll come back and re-expose themselves to learn more if they had a good time. And that's also, if you're hosting something, is do things like nobody wants to be, and this is sweeping generalization, but sometimes you need somebody to jumpstart your party. You know, you go to the play party and everybody's standing around talking and flirting, but nobody's playing. Yeah. And then, you know, as the host, you need a couple of people that you know are going to play. Yeah. They're going to come in. They're going to play. It's one of the things that Tony um, has done right with the Women of Drummer title circuit is that one of her title holders' responsibilities, literally, is to jumpstart the play party. Yeah. Start fucking around and doing dirty shit, someone. Exactly. You know, and I, I, you know, I know that and I make sure that I have ringers. Yeah. That I've got people that I know are going to be in the room, some of whom will do some pretty awesome cool scenes and other people that are willing to play with new people. Yeah. Yeah. You, and, know, you know, it's so funny you say that because we had, we had an event once I did a water sports event where I would, my, the goal was to put on a show and then invite individuals who are watching, if they wanted to, to come and piss on me. <laughs> so <laughs> I rang up like 15 of my friends and I was like, can you be here um, on this day at this time, drink lots of water and come piss on me to get this party started? Because like people are going to be like, what? Like I can do that? Like I'm not sure until they see a line starting to form in front of the the pool. Um and 15 of them said yes, 7 of them showed up. I knew that that was going to happen because people, That's pretty typical 50%. Yeah, life happens and I I knew that was going to happen. But let me tell you, like there was a big line to piss on me that night and I think it was because we got the party rolling with a few Exactly. <laughs> like so definitely, definitely um, <laughs> words of wisdom there. <laughs> the, uh, the biggest piss, piss scene that I've had, multiplayer piss scene that I've had the pleasure to be a part of, the guy that went first had asparagus for supper because he no! didn't know he was coming to the party. No. <laughs> yeah, we called him up. We called him up. We're like, one of the, somebody who was there, the person that was like the focus bottom we were like just trying to blow this woman's mind and one of her things was you know we wanted to have a guy there it was a whole bunch of leather dykes and we decided that we had to have a guy so we called up our friend mark and we're like mark what are you doing he's like i just finished supper i was gonna go play some do some online gaming why i'm like well screw that you're coming over here to this party you're coming over to and told them where we were which was like the fanciest most fabulous pro-dom dungeon in the area and did he and, have any idea that he was going to piss no no he, <laughs> he he didn't know what we're like mark come on over here we want you to be part of this big party for for so and so um and we want you to come he's like well it's way better than what i had planned tonight i'll be there in 10 minutes <laughs> we also kidnapped the uh, this whole week this whole huge scene started with a kidnapping in a van from as mid-atlantic leather at, uh was letting out that year we made the the kidnapping part of it made the leather journal we got the men of discipline and joseph bean who was running leather archives and museum at the time involved in the kidnapping it was it was a hoot that's amazing oh, so he had no idea that he was going to be, you know, in this piss scene. 
And he was a big sadist and just very sarcastic sadist. So he knew he had asparagus (laughs) for supper when we said, hey, you guys, the guy with the external plumbing should go first. Um, And he starts giggling. And then about five seconds later, we all found out why he was giggling. (laughs) It was hysterical. For me, it it always like... It, it's it can be so strong sometimes. At one time, I was at the a sex club here in LA, and there's it has a, a piss uh, a, a tub, and I will sit there and I'll get pissed on for hours. And this one guy comes and he's like, "Oh, I've never done this before! Like, I'm so excited!" And I was like, "Oh, cool! Like, I always love popping someone's cherry, kind of thing." And he starts pissing on me, and immediately I could tell this guy had asparagus, and He's so excited and in the zone. I'm not trying to pull him out of that. This is his first experience. So I'm just like, oh, yeah, like fucking soak me. Yeah. And as soon as he leaves, I'm like, I have to go wash off. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Yeah. So, um, you know, the taste of piss and how it can change saved me. uh, Really? Medical issues. Uh, I had. I had a girl at one point um, who did a lot of piss pace. She drank a lot of my piss. This is my first girl. And my doctor had changed my arthritis medicine from uh, Celebrex to, I forget the name of the second medicine, but it was like the hot new medicine. Everybody, this is what you got to be taking. Um, Well, after about three or four times, three or four dates after I've been taking this medicine for about a month, uh, my girl comes to me and says, sir, your girl really needs to talk to oh, you. Boy. I'm like, okay, girl. I, I don't know what's up. I'm like, of course. You know, we have, oh, you know, transparent open communication is one of the things we're into. Like, what's up? She's like, sir, you really got to call your doctor and ask him to change you, ba- you back to the old medication because this new one taste <laughs> is foul. I can't do it. I just can't do it. I have tried three oh, times now. I love drinking your piss so much, sir. I can't. Please call your doctor. Ask to have it changed back. So I immediately, Monday, called my doctor and said, um, you need to switch me back to my old bed. And he was the gay gay boy doctor. Oh, gosh. Um, and he asked why. <laughs> and so he said, why? And I told him. He's like, well, okay. And changed it back. And like six months later, there's a class action lawsuit against the manufacturer of this drug because it's causing all kinds of heart problems in people that took it. Oh, the new one. The new one. So okay. the foul taste of water sports and my girl saying, sir, can we please I, save me potential heart problems? So water sports save the day. Well, there you go. You, you heard it here first. It's healthy. It's um, <laughs> it can save lives. <laughs> exactly, water sports saves lives. There we go. That's the campaign right there. <laughs> well, I, I I guess we can, we know you're into water sports. Uh, what are some of your other kinks and fetishes? Um, well, in in terms of play and d- dungeon play kind of kind of scenario, I'm really into caning. Is like my my biggest shtick. Oh wow! As a top or a bottom? As a top. I'm. I almost exclusively play as a top for any kind of impact play. I'm a. So total... would you consider yourself a sadist then? No, 
Okay. I'm a service top. I, I want to hurt you the way you want to be hurt. Um, we'll probably take it just a little farther than you thought you could go. Um, okay. But, I, you know, I negotiate. My goal is always informed, enthusiastic, ongoing consent. Now, how does that consent look in, in the middle of a caning scene? Like, I, I imagine I've never really been caned. I imagine that's quite painful. How do you gauge that? Um, well, you learn over time how to how to pace it to keep your bottom with you. And there's a lot of a lot of bottoms who really know how to process pain in ways that I can cane somebody until they come over and over and over again. What? Yeah, it's awesome. Glenda, I need Good to times. come to Baltimore. <laughs> You know, and, and it's not everybody. Some, some people, it's yeah. just straight up painful. Um, but huh. bottoms who are like, caning is my thing. Some of them are into it for the pain. Sometimes some of them are, are into it for the rhythmic part of it. And, you know, there's all kinds of different ways to make people come with pain and rhythm and energy and all sorts of things like that. And would you say, like, what is like the duration of a, like a lengthy caning? in your experience oh, man i've caned somebody throughout the course of a day wow um and i've caned somebody for you know six of the best and that was it because you know it was set up as as a consequence mm. um in general it's you know usually 20 minutes 45 minutes an hour depends on the person and depends on whether we're doing more of a sensual caning or you know a straight up you know zero to 60 style you know you're an impact pain pig and that's what you want it, it there's as many different answers to that question as there are people to play with yeah 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 i i've recently discovered i say recently this was now thanksgiving this last thanksgiving um at claw that i'm into um stingy impact I've stayed away from Katie for 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 this amount of time, but we'll see. You know, I, there's always that box that you say is like not on the list, and then it makes the list. Mm -hmm. um, but it was like a good like hour and a half of spanking and flogging with all these different things, and by the end of it, I was like, I it took me like 45 minutes to come down because it was so intense, and um, it was amazing. Like. I had never experienced anything like that. And I think it can take like an experienced top to really like ride that wave of, like you said, your threshold and go a little bit further than you thought you could go before. Like that experienced top can lead you to a place where that you haven't gone before. Like that's where we want to go, right? I mean, that skill. Topping yeah. is a skill. Bottoming yeah. is a skill too. You know, it takes a lot of, a lot of skill and a lot of learning and a lot of self-awareness for bottom to learn to to ride the waves of adrenaline, the waves of uh, endorphins, the human energy and the connection, the breathing, the muscle tensing at just the right moment. You know, when I teach people, I'm like, okay, so do you want to learn how to come from caning? And sometimes they say yes. And I say, okay, here's what we're going to do. At that moment of impact, you're going to clench your kegel muscles. You're going to clench your cunt as tight as you can the moment the cane strikes so you know then i basically through the rhythm of how i deliver the caning i'm controlling how they're clenching their kegel muscles until they come oh my god i never thought of that 
I did. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do that next time. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, that's really hot because like you're in control of that muscle. Like you're, you're in control of what's going on down there with your impact. Yep. And I can't actually take credit for inventing that. I, I am so sure I stole that from two or three other experienced tops that were teaching me things. Well, you're passing it down, I'll tell you. Um, um, I also I love I love, um, I love topping with single tail. A professional dominatrix from L.A. named Stephanie Locke. She used to work at L.A. and New York City. And she taught me how to centrally use a single tail and also how to how to use it for pain. Um, but how to use it sensually and then work that up and through and into the um, using it in a more painful fashion. Hmm. Um, and she taught me a lot about how to construct a scene, though I learned an awful, there was this awesome class, like one of the things you like wanted to know is, you know, like what was one of the best classes I ever took in a, you know, kink related, leather related classes. You know, Stephanie Locke, I had the privilege of, she was um, a play partner with my first mentor in the scene, Denya Cascio. So she would stay at Denya's when she came to New York and Denya would work Saturday morning. So I get private lessons from one of the most renowned pro doms in the world when she was in town. She taught me single tail. Was this a person that taught in LA and in New York and they were? No, that was Stephanie. Yeah, that, that was Stephanie, Stephanie okay. Locke, yeah. Um, and then I met her alter ego. Um, I, I stayed with her when I went to an, uh, actually it was one of the leather leadership conference when it was in LA, I stayed in her apartment and I walked in and these bookcases, it was a wall to wall, floor to ceiling bookcases on every topic under the sun. And she was like, okay, so this is Stephanie's dungeon and this <laughs> is my other name's library. I'm huh. like, well, I am very pleased to meet you, other name. <laughs> and that could be, I mean, that's hot too to know that someone is like multifaceted. And that they, a brilliant you know. woman, just a brilliant woman. I was very, very lucky. Very well, lucky. Hold on, my dog's barking at something. One second. I'll be sure. Right Where were we? I still don't remember what what I was oh, going to tell you. But you were talking you were, you were talking about coming from. Um... Oh, that's what it was. I was going to tell you about the best class, one of the best classes I ever took. There is a um, a working artist. This man is the internationally renowned artist, and in the scene, he's Nayland Blake. I think that might be. I think he doesn't have two names. I think he's just Nayland Blake everywhere. He taught a class a number of times called the artist's way of designing a scene basically approaching a scene as a work of art hmm. and it was just the most fascinating class and it was some stuff that i was already doing and some because he was part of my leather family so i you know we watched by learning you know learn by watching each other play as well as by class you know going to classes and then you know i would tend to go to classes of the people that i wanted to play with i had a theory that the only people that actually went to the first classes especially if the class was before 10 a.m were either doing the instructor or wanted to be doing the instructor <laughs> i'll keep that in mind <laughs> that oh man <laughs> Let people sleep in. If you're throwing a play party that's on till two o'clock in the morning, know, don't make your first class sleep. at nine. Oh my I, god, uh, uh, that's really interesting. Making it art. Um, I, I I'll tell you as a 
I mean, I'm a violinist and that's what I do for a living. Mm-hmm. And I've come across two people now who have said they wanted me to come and improvise and like sort of underscore their BDSM scenes with violin, like live. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was interesting, like, huh. I never thought of putting art and kink together, but maybe maybe it's a thing. It'd be interesting to hear more about that class. Yeah, it was about, you know, considering composition and execution, and it was just really cool. But to what you're talking about, there was a title system existed for a couple of years called Drummer North America, and Doc Hoskins was one of their title holders for the, um, for the Sir title. And his fantasy involved his partner. His thing was boxing. He's a pugilist. Um, But his partner is a violinist and played the violin is the music for Doc's fantasy. Ah. It was pretty cool. Um, Mm. And then there was there was this event back in the early 90s called Power Surge. It was the first lesbian SM conference that any of us had ever heard about. I saw a flyer for it in the women's bookstore in Baltimore. And we all gathered in Seattle. We didn't even know there were 300 leather dykes in the entire world. Um, <laughs> and then we all descended on this community college on the hill up in Seattle for Power Surge. And they had this um, one of the like sort of group performance scenes was the human string orchestra the human string orchestra yeah they had a xylophone um which was four bottoms on their knees with their butts up being played with xylophone hammers um they had a cello which was a woman who had piercings at her shoulders and on her butt with strings strung and you know oh my god uh, the f holes sharpied on and they were taught the strings were really taught they used real cello strings and they were playing it with a bow and the reverberations through the needles so that was the cello they had a four-person bass drum which involved four people sitting down they had piercings in their thighs that a drum skin was connected to a drum head was connected to oh my god and then there was the harp um the harp involved three bottoms and a whole lot of piercings and strings and there were like two or three tops doing the piercing and the stringing on that one and then they were just plucking at it the human string orchestra it was like the first time i saw that kind of big group thematic so well done that is wild kind of a kind of a scene it was power surge in 1992 in february no that was that was labor day weekend that was my birthday (gasps) weekend they basically my birthday is the first of september so when they were throwing power surge they did like three or four of them um (laughs) i was like it's my birthday my mother's like what do you want for your birthday this year i'm like i want a plane ticket to seattle mom (laughs) (laughs) oh my god wow so that's probably one of the most memorable scenes i've ever seen ever you know it still sticks with me you know 30 years later. I, I fucking love it. My God. So, I mean, out, out of all of these years of being in the leather community and being a player, one who, who promotes play, I mean, what would you say is like the most important thing to consider as like someone coming into the leather community today? 
I feel like we, people are attracted to this because of sex, right? I mean, uh, a lot of people come for sex. Yeah. Uh, I remember at one point, one of the lines in Sarah's bio was, I've been involved in BDSM and kink and leather from the days when we called it the good sex. Hmm. You know, so certainly a lot of people come for the sex. Some people come for the thrill, Mm -hmm. for the endorphin rush. Some people come at it from a spirituality point of view. I've I've met that crowd, you know. The Southwest Leather Conference tends to draw a lot of this. We're in this because it's our kind of our spirituality folks in Phoenix, okay. Arizona. They have a big hook pull with live drumming. Oh, my God. that That's one of the wow. most incredible experiences. I've been there. I've been in that room three to- three different times. The final third time I went, I actually did the hook pull part. The first two times I went, it was because I want- wanted to go for the drumming. Wait, you got pierced? Huh? Yeah. Um a hook pole is basically putting these big stainless steel fish hooks. I think they're stainless surgical steel fish hooks in your chest of various gauges. Wow. Um, and some people, you know, some people fly with them. They're suspended off the ground from them. Sometimes in the chest, sometimes in the back, sometimes both. Or, you know, sometimes they basically you can do it a couple of different ways once you're pierced. And you can either do two or four, typically. Some people do a lot more. And then you attach cord, and somebody else pulls on the cord, or you you cord yourselves together and pull back and forth. Or you put your cord on one of the hooks on a big structure, sort of pagoda-like structure that people can pull against. Some people, rather than doing the hooks, will have balls or bells sewn on with sutures um, and they'll dance until um, until the sutures pull out or you know the knots come loose on the bells sometimes that happens too and you got flying bells Um, you know risk aware consensual kink one of the risks of going to a ball dance is the balls go flying at some point people Uh, I mean I can see how that can be spiritual because you're like literally physically connected Mm mm-hmm in, in a, such a way that, like, releases those endorphins from even just, like, the physicalness of, of getting pierced yeah. and then riding that endorphin through that Yeah, so there's, a, there's, you know, there's a lot of overlap between the modern primitive community and the kink community and the leather mm-hmm. community. A lot of overlap with the uh, the folks that you know, do the suspension piercings. And if you want to do a little more exploration about the roots of that movement and, you know, the overlay with kink, Fakir Musafar was the father of the modern primitive movement in America. He's a hmm. big leather man, kinky guy up in San Francisco. And he was married and partnered for a very long time to Cleo Dubois, who has been teaching women how to be dominant and be tops for decades. So he's, you know, he was really a force to be reckoned with in that whole movement. So there's, you know, the people that come to our community through through that, that, you know, the black leather wings, those are the leather fairies. You know, people come to, to BDSM, leather kink and fetish for so many different reasons. The thing I would tell somebody new, beware anyone espousing the one true way take this as a journey of self-exploration and growth don't let anybody else yuck your yum try to remember that fun is should be a core value depending on why you're here not for everybody so yeah we're here for other reasons but for 
in general is a sweeping generalization. Fun is a core value and, and make play happen. <laughs> Leather people have bed death the same way vanilla people have bed death. You know, you got to continue to make play happen. What is the point in spending a lot of time, energy, and money building a fantastic play space in your home or community and then it doesn't get used? Yeah. But that's a little bit of a, a tangent. What I would tell new people is communication is key. Learn how to communicate. Be honest and transparent in your communication. Learn and understand what consent culture is. Because if everybody is practicing informed, enthusiastic, ongoing consent, you can make almost anything happen. You talk to enough people, you meet enough people, there is somebody out there who is going to give you informed, ongoing, enthusiastic consent for what it is you want to try. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what makes you hot. There's other people out there, and it's so much easier to find them now with the internet other than you know, back in the day, we had ads in monthly gay and lesbian magazines, right? you know, or, you know, <laughs> and then the Spiegel Society started a phone line in New York City. And that was really, really big news. And it helped a lot of people find each other. But, you know, I teach a class, um, I call it kink first contact as a nod to my um, sci-fi friends. And it's basically what you need to know before you pick up a flogger. Before you ever touch a toy, what should you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it talks mostly about consent culture. You know, things like how to not be a jerk in sex-positive spaces. I know? love that. How to, take, yeah. how to take no gracefully. How to say no gracefully. Yeah, that's definitely one. It is, I think people are afraid to say no because they don't know how to say no without killing the vibe. Mm-hmm. And then people end up getting in situations where they feel like they're stuck, but the, the communication isn't happening still, right? Yeah. And then something, you know, as well as it, like consent doesn't always have to be, what's the word? Sterile. No. It could, it could be sexy. You work it in your sexy talk. Yeah. You want me to spank your ass? You want to get down there and lick that boot? <laughs> I mean, there's lots of different ways you can, if you ever have the opportunity to attend Midori's class on talking dirty, oh my mm. God, oh my goodness, Midori, any any class Midori teaches is going to be fantastic, yeah. um, but she has yeah. a, at least used to teach a dirty talk class that was just, oh, <laughs> everybody walk out of that room and just be like fanning themselves and like, I gotta go smoke. <laughs> oh, that's something I'd be interested in. Um, Glenda, I'm, I, I'm always curious about people who have been in the play space for a long time. Uh, is, is there any like funny or embarrassing moments where maybe things didn't pan out just the way you thought? And Oh, I've thrown a flogger across the room more than once. um yeah i mean i've i've certainly made some huge mistakes um and had things not go as planned and what is what happens you roll with it or you know sometimes it just becomes a different scene uh and sometimes it is seen over and you know i've made i made a mistake one time that the relationship never recovered from well yeah um you know and that sometimes you know the expression of sometimes you can't unring the bell yeah um you know it's like it's i learned the hard way to ask people okay um so what are your trigger words Mm -hmm. some people just you know it 
you say the wrong word and, that, and that's over. It clicks them off. Yeah. You know, it clicks them off. Um, I've had that happen on occasion. Um, yeah, throwing the flogger across the room more than once. That's that's uh, that's pretty. That's... I mean, are there are there room for mistakes? You think? Absolutely. You can't become. You, there's no way to become an expert at something without making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Even with the best mentorship, even with the best one-on-one training, you know, any of the things, your good mistakes is going to happen. My first cutting scene was also my first suturing scene because mm-hmm. I cut too deep. Wow. Um, but the bottom that I was cutting, I was an experienced cutting bottom. And she was like, all right, now this is where, you, and, you know, and we had a spotter who was, who was an RN. So when it became clear that I had cut too deep, they're like, okay, well, now we're going to sew this back up. And this is how you yeah. do that. You know, so my first cutting scene also was my first surgering scene. And mistakes happen. So there are, are responsible uh, ways to approach absolutely situation you know they say one of the things you know i live in baltimore um but i'm a bit of a political junkie and it's like what they say in dc it's not the crime it's the cover-up that what if you make a mistake own the mistake you know if i'm flogging somebody and one of my one of the falls of the whip catches their ear you know, I'm going to come in and I'm going to, you know, lightly touch and massage and acknowledge that, hey, you know, uh, sorry about that. Right. Um, or if it's somebody I've played with a lot of times, they might they might not get the sorry about that. But they know that if I've missed and I come up and touch the place that I miss, that I'm acknowledging that I know I missed. Right. Um, so they know I know I missed. And they're not right. sitting there thinking, okay, you know, am I going to lose my ear on the next shot? Right. You're still, you're still, you don't have to, you don't necessarily trust. have to stop the scene. Now, if something's gone so sideways that, you know, it is imperative you stop the scene so no permanent damage is done. Right. That's a whole nother story. You know, at that point, you swallow your ego, yeah. you get help, you fix the situation so that, you know, a mistake doesn't become permanent harm. Mm-hmm. But if it's a little, you know, oh, I, I struck somebody on the, sh- my, it wrapped, you know, and now they've got, you know, a welt across their bicep. You can acknowledge that in a sexy way without having to crush the vibe of the scene. And I think that speaks also to like the importance of education, because I, I'm assuming based off of our speaking together that in the midst of you being informed and skilled and practiced, you know, well-practiced in a lot of these kinks, there's like, there's still a chance for error sometimes. Absolutely. If someone who is well-versed in these skills can still make a mistake, it's ever so more important that newbies who want to engage in things like single tail whipping or needling or what have you, need to be educated on those things absolutely if you think about kink play as a sport mm. it's like you know if you're gonna you know say you've suddenly a friend of mine just took up archery and just won a really cool belt buckle because you know they're really quick picker upper at things but when she decided to take on this new sport she did research she went to some classes she had a, a personal trainer Things like that. You know, you want to say you decide you're going to learn a new hobby. You want to learn how to sew. Yeah. Whatever. 
You know, it's the same thing. BDS kink play skills are just that. They're skills. Right. And skills are built over time. They can't happen overnight. And I, I remind that to a lot of my um, my students who want to play violin, which is supposedly one of the hardest instruments to perform in the world. And when they tell me it's hard, I say, yeah, it is hard. Because if it was easy, everybody could do it and it wouldn't be special anymore. And like... That's the thing. It's like it's in the details, right? Like not everything in life is going to be easy. It's going to take work. It's going to take time. And it's going to take passion on top of it. But like if this is something where you see being a part of your life is something that's important to you, something that's a priority, you'll take the time, right? Absolutely. I do want to ask you, uh, jumping headfirst into leather community after your first encounter over at that conference up until today and being the first Miss Baltimore Eagle, what would you say is maybe one of the most memorable moments of your journey so far and maybe one of your biggest takeaways? I mean, that's a big question. That is a big question. (laughs) That's a very big question. There's so many memorable moments. Mm. Let me take the, the takeaway question first. Okay. Um, there's two. The first one's sarcastic, a little bit petty. But I always try to keep in mind that there's a reason you can get a doctoral degree on organizational behavior. Hmm. It doesn't matter what kind of organization it is, whether it's a leather backpatch club or the women's sewing circle at your local church. There's always going to be interpersonal dynamics when you put people into a group humans are pack animals and we behave certain ways in groups and the bdsm leather fetish kink communities are not immune from the problems of any other community or any other culture we have tried to reinvent the wheel better i do see more intentionality in our communities than in other types of organizations I do see more intentionality, and I think that has been as consent culture has grown. Mm-hmm. One of the things that comes with it is you, if you're living a life of where your goal is informed, enthusiastic, and ongoing consent, that kind of embraces a little bit of intentionality right there. Mm-hmm. That's my big takeaway is that people are people are people, and that it behooves us to remember that people are, you know, are people in whatever drag they're wearing in whatever community they're, they're a part of. We're uh, all human. Kindness is free, y'all. Sprinkle that shit everywhere. Hmm. One of my favorite title holders when she was Women's Leather Legacy title holder, which was a title that um, was designed to capture women's leather history video history stories. And one of her taglines was, kindness is free, y'all. She was from Texas. Kindness is free, y'all. Sprinkle that shit everywhere. (laughs) Um, You know, and and the same. You know, the chosen family that I have been the honor and the privilege to be parts of through the years, um, several of them. You know, I'm the only child of an only child. I don't have much biological family. My chosen family has been my biggest takeaway from being a leather person is my relationships with other leather people. So that's my, my takeaway is these are my people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, God, one moment. 
you know, there's the funniest moment. Uh, sure. That's so a that, memorable moment. <laughs> give you, you know, the funniest moment was absolutely the year I judged International Mr. Leather. Every year that they have a, a woman judge, pretty much every year they have one, sometimes two. And most leather contests, you know, a lot of people ask a lot of the same questions and, and this and that. I mean, I always ask people what's the most important book they've ever read and why. Um, you develop a formula sometimes when, when you judge a lot of things, which I've been privileged to do. So there's pop question in a lot of leather contests have a pop question category. Inevitably, some contestant gets asked the, okay, so there's a panel of judges, you know, pick one of the judges, one or more of the judges, and, you know, tell us a sexual fantasy with them, tell us a fan and leather fantasy with them, tell us what you want to do with them, what do you want to do, it's some variation of that question. Right. All right, so I'm the woman judge that year. It's 2007. And it's a really handsome guy. Clearly, you know, he's in bicep straps and a leather jock and he's looking fabulous. And he gets asked that question and he just gets this huge smile on his face and he's kind of giggling. And what comes out of his mouth is, well, you know, I'm a huge glory hole pig. So <laughs> I'm going to have to say Glenda Ryder because she's the only judge I'm positive I haven't already done. <laughs> The room lost control. That kid oh got God. a standing ovation of people screaming on their feet for minutes. Um, <laughs> it was truly one of the pinnacle moments of, I, I, I'm just, oh my God. It was just one of the most memorable moments of my life. Um, I and, love that. You know, I, fun is a core value for me. Laughter is one of my love languages. Hmm. So that's certainly one of the most memorable one of my favorite pictures of me is a picture that was taken on stage at International Ms. Leather, probably 2008 or 2009. I'd had this really cool shades of blue camo corset jacket vesty thing. It was basically a corset with straps. Butched it up a little bit, but still definitely put my rack up and, and front and center. And I've also been to, you know, the hanky code, right? What, what do you uh -huh. flag? You know, you, it sounds like, you know, you're going to flag leather yellow on the right. My, my little piss, uh, piss slut um, <laughs> yes. over there. Um, so I've always teased that, you know, I, when I bottom, it's because I'm flagging clipboard right. That, you know, basically I am bottoming to whatever event I'm, producing and i've got my checklist on my clipboard so yeah. i've got what i it looks like i've got a clipboard under one arm and i've got the microphone in the other arm and i'm on stage probably trying to draft somebody you know draft half a dozen people to take those last security shifts or whatever <laughs> you know the absolute emotional high of being on stage in front of you know, there were never 700 people in that ballroom. It only sat 550 people. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there were years at various points during the contest where that room was full. To be on stage in front of over 500 people who are cheering their full heads off because they're having a good time at your party that your best friends have all gotten together to help throw. That is an incredible moment. Yeah. That's an incredible moment. And it's a humbling moment because, you know, as much as my ego would like to say that, hey, I did that, every success that I've ever had has been a group project. 
I have been incredibly fortunate, I mean, to the level of I am blessed, that I have spent the last 30 plus years making outrageous requests of incredibly talented, dedicated people with, you know, of their time, of their talents, of their resources, because I had a great idea. Mm-hmm. Or, or as some of them have come to say, Glenda's got another idea. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> but for 30 years, Brandon, they say yes. Some of the mm-hmm. same people have been saying yes to me for almost 30 years. Yeah. Um, and some people, I met them last week, and they say yes and show up. You know, the first time I meet them, I'm throwing a, a fundraiser in next weekend help pay for my mom's care costs after my knee surgery and i've just met this fellow he introduced he's an old army nurse and so he feels kinship with my mom well this guy shows up with an entire trunk full of items for the silent auction i have never met this man in my life um but because i've asked the community he has shown up and shown up big you know so everything that i've ever accomplished has been because really talented people have gotten on board and have helped run it, have done the labor for it. The only the only time, you know, the only things that I have truly done on my own have been the mistakes that I've made that those other folks have tried to stop me from making. You know, when I listen to my highly talented friends and family, you know, we we make play happen. Yeah. Um, and it's always it's always been a team. So it's it's a it's been a team sport. My life really has been a team sport, and I'm really lucky to be able to say that. Absolutely. I mean, that's super special to know that you have like that community, that family, like you said, to back you up. Well, Glenda, as we wrap up here, I normally like to ask if it's okay. Some of our listeners do like to reach out, provide feedback, or even just reach out to say hello because they've heard your episode. How can we stay connected? How can we reach out? I am Glenda Ryder on Facebook. I have not made the jump onto any of the other platforms. I can barely keep up with my Facebook page. Okay. <laughs> a, a Fet Life, maybe? Or uh, a... <laughs> you know, for the folks that are on Fet Life, I'm Glenda on Fet Life. I got my name only because I went to the grocery store one day. I came home and Levi was like, Sir! I made you a profile on Fat Life. I'm like, you're such a good boy. What the fuck is Fat Life? There were like 75,000 members at the time. There's now like, you know, probably 10 million if you can include all the duplicates. Yeah. I don't spend hardly any time on Fat Life anymore unless there's a, you know, unless I know that there's something there I need to go there for. Got it. Got it. Well, Glenda, before we go, do you have any last words for our audience? Um, Yeah, I want to congratulate you, Brandon, for doing this series of Leather Talks. Um, One of my big fetishes is the collection and preservation and sharing of our history. And clearly, since, you know, I'm a very nonlinear storyteller, storytelling is something (laughs) that I think is very important to our community. So I want to commend you for you know, creating this Leather Talk series. And now the fact that the the last two or three people you've had on have all been personal friends of mine, um, you know, you get a triple thumbs up. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think that you really created a way for people to stay connected in a time where our community needed that. And it's, you know, it's things like that. People like you 
that keep me engaged and active in our community. You know, I am currently actively seeking um, a younger mentor. And I just think that what you and some of the other people that are newer to our community are doing, it's refreshing, it's vibrant. Thank you. Thank you, Glenda. I really appreciate having you on the show today and for your transparency and just being an open book. We really loved having you on. For our audience members, as always, you can find me on Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet and Twitter as Brandon Bullet LA. Thanks again for listening, and as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it kinky. Okay.